welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from The Young Turks, On the Media, Rachel Maddow, Mother Jones Radio, and Ring of Fire. All right, so all around the country today, uh, from uh, Los Angeles to Chicago, Houston to New Orleans, it's our day without immigrants. Uh, that's what it's been called. It's very making Lou Dobbs very angry, and maybe Jill too, because he thinks it's all about illegal immigration, and he, he thinks that the main the mainstream media has been uh, co-opted. Uh, by the by the uh, by the immigrant uh, movement, and he thinks the left, the far left, radical left, has taken over the immigrant movement. But that's Lou Dobbs. Uh, hundreds of thousands, mostly Hispanic immigrants, have skipped work, took to the streets Monday. It says here uh, from an Associated Press story. Ben, I- I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt for a second. <laughs> I love how much power this far left has. Yeah, you know, every once in a while, people talk about, oh, the mainstream media or this or that or the immigration movement has been co-opted by the far left. What are they talking about? I don't know a group that is less powerful that or that has ever been as has as as little power as the far left has in this country today. You know, the far left look the left has no power in this country. Right. You know, let alone the far left. They are the least powerful people in America and they've co-opted the mainstream media and the immigration movement and all yes, these things. That's right. I mean it is ridiculous to say that. It is not even close to true. Phil O'Reilly says that's exactly what's happening. Uh, you know uh, Thomas Frank who wrote the book What's the Matter with Kansas had a great uh, review of Joe Klein's latest book. And he says Joe Klein talks about, oh, Harry Truman was great and this and that. And these days, the problem is the Democratic Party and the country has been taken over by the far left. Okay. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Joe, that's a ridiculous statement by Joe Klein. And so Thomas Frank did something great. He said, oh, really? You know what? Let me go back and listen to Harry Truman's actual speeches and see what he says. And then he gives the quotes in the book review. And the quotes are devastating. Harry Truman is so far to the left of anyone in America today that you're like, no. Harry Truman, the great populist, so-called centrist Democrat that these... The Republicans love, Look at ask any Republican to name a good Democratic president. They're like, Harry no, Truman, no, he dropped the bomb. Nine out of ten will say Harry Truman. Give him hell. Give, Give him hell, Harry. And then Democrats say that, and the centrist Democrats say that, and then you read the speeches of Harry Truman. He's like, the Republican Party is the party of the rich, and they're screwing you, and they're taking your money, they're stealing it. And they go on and on and on about how the Democrats represent the populace and the, and the people and the poor, and they're trying to protect you, and the Republicans are stealing your money because they're made of special interest, uh, uh, you know, corporate types, right? And you read the speech, and you're like, wow, this guy couldn't get elected to Congress today in the most Democratic district. Sunday, Arab television broadcast new audio, purportedly of Osama bin Laden, issuing what one counterterrorism expert called a state of the jihad address, in which he called on his supporters to prepare for a, quote, long war against the crusader plunderers in western Sudan. But lately, he's not the only one who talks about digging in. 
When we talk about the long war, we're talking about... Uh, this is going to be a long war, and I think we need to look at it as a long war. One of the principles that we follow in the long war... How do we learn if we're going to fight a long war, and we are, if we're facing... We need to look at the war as a long war and understand... It's now calling it the long war. Last February, coinciding with the release of the Pentagon's Quadrennial Defense Review, Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld delivered a speech titled The Long War, in which he conjured up imagery of the Cold War, while laying out broad strategies to fight what could be a decades-long terrorist threat across the globe. Gideon Rose is the managing editor of Foreign Affairs magazine. He says that the administration's attempt to brand this war mid-conflict won't ensure that it'll be remembered that way. Nobody woke up in the 14th century in England and said, gee, I'm going off to fight this part of the Hundred Years' War. Um, I think part of the problem here is you've pegged it just right. They're thinking of this as a brand, whereas properly understanding the conflict that you're involved in is the key towards developing a sensible and viable strategy for waging the conflict. First and most enduringly, it seems, this conflict was called the Global War on Terror, or as experts call it, GWAT. That seems to have been the stickiest moniker, but why has the administration backed away from it? Well, one of the chief problems here is that the administration was trying to conflate three separate issues, which is the struggle against uh, al-Qaeda and other kinds of radical Islamist terrorism on the one hand, country-specific security issues such as that posed by Saddam Hussein or Iran's attempt to gain nuclear weapons and so forth, on the other hand. And then finally, uh, political development in the Middle East more generally. The administration tried to make an argument that all these things were related, and the administration has had trouble both selling what it was doing at all and lumping all its various efforts together in one simple, easy-to-understand package. But if that was the problem with the global war on terror, they didn't really take great strides to solve it with its next phrase, which was a little more cumbersome, called the global struggle against violent extremism or G-save. It seems that all the problems were inherent in that phrase as well. Yeah, that one seemed to be an attempt to get beyond this question of why some terrorists, but not other terrorists, were the target. You were not going to go to war against the Tamil Tigers. You were not going to take the IRA all that seriously. The substantive issue was violent extremists who were using terrorism as a tactic. So let's talk about violent extremism as the problem rather than uh, terrorism. It was an attempt to move in the right direction substantively, uh, but it was indeed both cumbersome. And G-Save really didn't lend itself to anything uh, interesting or catchy in the first place. So, Gideon, now we have the long war. What's the idea here? Is it supposed to resonate like the good war, which is the phrase attached to World War II, or the Cold War, or both? Well, I think the phrase the Cold War uh, wasn't a brand so much as a description. It was a reference to a long-term geopolitical conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union that was kept cold by nuclear weapons uh, and didn't actually result in a military battle like the subsets like Korea and Vietnam, but it was a useful concept because it never let you forget that fundamentally the United States and the Soviet Union were engaged in a long-term war of positions for control, not just of geographic territory, but also uh, the loyalties and minds of uh, people in their own spheres and the world at large. And so 
the, the chief virtues of the long war concept are first that it stresses that don't worry about the uh, short term problems because this is a very long struggle which we're in the early stages of. So it seems to put in perspective by its very terminology the problems we've encountered so far. And second of all, it carefully uh, eliminates the question of long war against what. And so it kind of sidesteps the whole question of who the chief target is and how other peripheral conflicts are related to the chief target by not talking about them whatsoever. Now, the long war is using the word war, at least in part metaphorically, since this struggle is supposed to be waged as much through diplomacy as arms. But how about the word long? I mean, that doesn't seem one likely to resonate with a public that, at least according to the polls, isn't much interested in keeping troops in Iraq for very long. Well, I think that long war isn't going to make it a catchy, saleable thing. What they're really hoping is it gets them out of the dilemma of having lost the war. If you say long war, then it hasn't been lost because by definition, we're only in the early stages of it. It's very ambiguity and its implication that you shouldn't get hung up on current problems is its chief virtue for them. If you actually were to give it more detail, it would be legitimate. There is going to be a very long struggle against radical Islamist terrorism. The problem is the administration has gotten stuck because they want to package and sell all their various efforts together, and they want to do so when they're not going particularly well. So it's your assessment, then, that this just isn't going to work. I guess what I'd say is the following. The Bush administration has engaged in far worse crimes against language than the long war. Calling preventive war a policy of preemption was a very, very bad thing because they perverted the use of language and deliberately obscured the radical nature of what they were trying to achieve. Calling this the long war is both vague and somewhat accurate. It doesn't involve the kind of political machinations and deliberate verbal trickery with an intent to deceive that the concept of preemption uh, as the administration defined it, did. And so I would go easy on the people who came up with the long war and think of them as uh, overburdened flax trying hard to uh, package a bad product rather than deliberately evil spinmeisters trying to pull a fast one on the rest of us. All right. Gideon, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Brooke. Gideon Rose is managing editor of Foreign Affairs magazine. Are you ready for the long-awaited return of the Rachel Maddow Show radio theater players? The scene is set for FBI headquarters in Washington, Friday afternoon. A visiting group of 23 sixth graders from the Charles Young Elementary Hilltop Academy in Washington, D.C. is having a tour of FBI headquarters as part of the FBI's junior special agent program. Our players today are Maurice, sixth grader, age 12, who will be played by Jackie Bell, Rachel Maddow show uh, producer here. Thank you, Jackie. Hi. Hi. Uh, Christian, who is a sixth grader, age 12, will be played by me. And Alberto Gonzalez, torture guy, attorney general of the United States, age 52, will be played by Kent. Thank you very much, Kent. Sure. Our story begins in the FBI cafeteria. What is your full name? My name is Alberto Gonzalez. What would you like us to know about you? 
I have two boys about your age, so I know a little bit about what you like and what you don't like. What else, Maurice? That's it. That's it. No more questions. <laughs> That's a good interview. Hey, what do you think about the war? Well, one thing you have to remember is that sometimes people have to die so we can all live in freedom. That's always been the case. I think they should end the war.、Mm, you know what? I think everyone wants the war to end as soon as possible. I really do. Nobody wants Ameri young American soldiers to die, including the president. If the president made us go to war with Iraq, why doesn't he go over there and fight the war? Hmm. Why doesn't he go do that? <laughs> well, he's sort of the commander in chief. He's leading the troops. That's what happens in wars. You have people making the plans and making the decisions, and then you have people who make sure those directives are carried out. At that moment, a Justice Department public relations officer kicked out the Washington Post reporter who had been transcribing this dialogue between the Attorney General of the United States and two 12-year-olds named Maurice and Christian. Anybody else here want to nominate Maurice and Christian for the White House press corps? Believe me, Ben and I and Jill will go on these shows as much as they want. O'Reilly, you want it? Sean Hannity, bring it, bring it. I'll be like George Bush, bring him on. <laughs> okay, but largely they they I don't know I don't know if it's because they like to pick people they could push around. You know I I don't know how they make their selections, but I, I tell you I would kick the living crap out of them. Yeah, intellectually. Uh, yeah, I know Jack likes going. I don't like going on those shows. So uh, uh, there's just too much. Why not? It's not. I don't like it. There's yelling. You have a responsibility to your country, to the world, Ben. Oh, I'm not saying I won't do it. I'll do it anytime we ask. I just don't like it.、Um, I, uh, know, I'm, I'm the opposite. I love it.、Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll eviscerate you.、Uh, you know. I, I, I hate、uh, the 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 manner of of, of of exchange on those shows, but it doesn't mean that that we. I mean, Jake should go on. He's very good at it too. So. All right, eight six. Honestly, I think that's why. No, no, man. Are you、it's、telling me that you're scared to go on talk shows and argue your point? I get. Do you feel that insecure on your take of political,、uh, the political nature of things, Dave? I see. I don't know. Look, I don't know the last word, Ben. You get the last word. Fair and balanced. <laughs> I don't know who you're imitating, but I hate that guy. <laughs>、uh, you know what? Skip forward here for a second, Jack and Jesus. Guys, bring up the clip of Monica Crowley on、uh, Scarborough Country. Okay. Yeah. See, this isn't exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe they don't have us on the shows because we just wouldn't play along with the format. I, this is probably they don't have us on because we're not big enough. That's probably the real reason for it. I mean, you know, we're, we're honest here with you,、uh, but. Look at this. You're going to watch this clip. Scarborough and, and Monica Crawley, their so-called political analysts on MSNBC, just talking pure drivel, nonsense. If I was on with them, I'd say, "What are you talking about, Monica? Are you nuts?" Yes,、yeah, see, I was doing Scarborough and Bill O'Reilly like together with a little hint of Chris Matthews. O'Reilly country. All、oh, right,、yeah. here it is. Go ahead. Crowley, the National Science Foundation drew up a scenario in which a 150 kiloton bomb. Constructed by terrorists, was detonated in New York City, in the heart of Manhattan, at the foot of the Empire State Building. Now, one second after detonation, 75,000 people would be killed instantly, and nothing inside the blast radius you see there would be recognizable. After four seconds, the shock waves extend one mile from ground zero, killing an additional 300,000 people. 
Commuters using New York City subways would be trapped underground possibly for days. After 16 seconds, the shock waves extend four miles around, causing permanent blindness and thousands of victims. With the final tally, 830,000 killed, another 875,000 injured. Uh, Monica, is there any possibility that the Iranian leaders that are in charge right now would ever be so irrational as to launch a nuclear attack on cities like Los Angeles, New York, Washington, D.C., if they get this nuclear device? Unequivocally, yes, Joe. And in fact, the she hypothetical scenario that you fired. just laid out, that hypothetical ground zero is just a few blocks from where I'm sitting here tonight. Oh, my God. So she must it be is so nervous. an incredibly frightening scenario and absolutely within the realm of possibility, all those cities given the nature of the regime right we're now. talking about. This Tehran regime covers the terrorist trifecta. They do have weapons of mass destruction, possibly no, even nuclear at this point. No, they that's a lie. Terror, and they do support al-Qaeda. That's a lie! Monica, There's let me ask you this. I want to show a picture of where you are. Let's, let's go ahead and go to the live shot in New York right now. This is where the Monica, terrorist attack is about Tehran to happen. Tehran launch attack, and we, we have a shot up of Times Square right now. If they were la to launch an attack in Times Square, they would have to know mm. that we would go in and obliterate Tehran and their entire country. I mean, of course, during the Cold War, we called it mutually assured destruction. Right. They have to be logical enough to understand their country would never survive a nuclear attack against but, us. But, Joe, you're dealing with a regime that is not logical and it is also not rational. The president of Iran, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, really believes in bringing on a Muslim-led apocalypse. This is what he He's generally never said that. The only people who say that are Christian fundamentalists. Statements he makes pretty much on a daily basis. Look, <laughs> on a daily basis? has missiles with which She's to getting deliver to the weapons we're talking about. Here. They are intermediate range, meaning they can reach Israel. They cannot yet reach the United States. Oh. But that doesn't mean that Tehran's based weapons, and again, we may be talking about nuclear weapons that they may already have. Right. Oh. They would pass them Hold off on. to Al-Qaeda and allow Al-Qaeda to bring them into the United States and detonate them. There's no reason to suggest that, that the maniacs in Tehran would not give those weapons to Al-Qaeda and allow Al-Qaeda to go and do its dirty work for them. I can't sneak, There's no reason. I can't uh, sneak tweezers you. to Hawaii. How are they sneaking nuclear weapons to New York? <laughs> all right, now let's understand a couple of things. First of all, uh, this is why I, they're right to not let me in. I, and after this, I'd say, first of all, Monica Carly should be fired on the spot. She just said three things that are e not even close to true. She, uh, four things. She said uh, Iran is linked with al-Qaeda and they would give al-Qaeda the bomb. Al-Qaeda and Iran are enemies, are mortal enemies. One is Shiite, the other is Sunni. If you gave al-Qaeda the bomb, there's some chance they'd use it on Iran. Okay? You have no idea what you're talking about, Miss Political Analyst. They call her a political analyst. Second of all, she says they might she said twice they might already have a nuclear weapon. No one believes that. That is not true. Even warmonger Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld, the hardest of the hardest neocons, Bill Crystal, Michael Leighton, etc., etc., they don't even say that Iran has a nuclear weapon. But I thought last week we were 15, 12 minutes away from a nuclear weapon. And she says they could develop... I, no, hold on. I mean, am I right? That's what they were saying last week, something along those lines? The State Department made a, a, a ridiculous comment. One neocon is the State Department saying... Uh, under the X, Y, and Z scenario, which does not exist, that they could have a nuclear weapon in 16 days. 
That's a lie. The people who know are the International Atomic Energy Association. They are very much against Iran. They believe Iran is acting very wrong, and they, they, they want to take action against Iran. They were the people that were exactly right about the state of Iraqi's uh, uh, WMD program. They say at best, at the very least, five to ten years away from a nuclear program, okay, from a nuclear weapon. And these guys are talking about, she said twice, twice. they might already have a nuclear weapon. They might, that might, is a lie. That's not even uh, incorrect. That's a lie. It might already be in a cab in Times Square. And then to show, if you see the video that we showed you on the Young Turks, uh, to... They showed New York City three, four, five times, right? They show Times Square. They show a map of New York City. They show L.A. They show Chicago. They're like, well, could it happen? Or is L.A. and New York and Chicago about to be blown up? So be scared. Be scared. Be scared. They're about to attack us with nuclear weapons that they don't have. Well, I got to tell you, I mean, she knows what she's talking about. She, was a, she has a master's in political science from Colgate, and she was uh, Richard Nixon's foreign policy advisor uh -huh. from, from 1990 until 1994 when he died. So the last four years. <laughs> <laughs> the last four years of his life, when Richard Nixon was jet-setting all over the country, sort of making important foreign policy uh, uh, decisions. She's also been accused of plagiarism uh, a number of times, and MSNBC uh, announced recently that she will anchor the noon hour for them. They've given her her own. Oh, day. congratulations, MSNBC. You know, go further to the right. Bush's approval ratings are 33%. See how much you could shake, you know, take that ship of yours and sink it right into the ground. But you know Don't what? Don't stop until it hits the bottom. Why would you run a network work to the right when the country despises the Republicans in charge. Because she's pretty. No, she's not. <sighs> uh, my God, how grotesquely inaccurate do you have to be? And you see what they're doing? That's fear-mongering. They're going to blow up the bomb. How many people will be killed in New York? What are you talking about? How are they going to get it to New York? And then she says later, oh, yeah, by the way, they don't have any uh, way of delivering it to New York, but maybe they could give it to Al-Qaeda their enemies, right. so that they might use it against the United States of America. No knowledgeable person would make that statement. Yeah, they're not allied with Al-Qaeda, but you know how they would get allied with Al-Qaeda? If, if we attacked them. <laughs> exactly. And the only people threatening nuclear weapons at this point is not the Iranians, and not on a daily basis, as she says, but it is the United States of America. George Bush said he will not take nuclear weapons off the table. Ahmed and Ajit we, we not take them off the table. We have a plan that includes nuclear weapons. That's unquestionably true. The Defense Department has a plan that involves using bunker buster nuclear weapons to attack what would be Iran's nuclear sites if they were to ever get a weapon. Ahmadinejad has said terrible things. We, you know, he's a fundamentalist leader, and we looked forward to finding ways to get rid of him in Iran. Okay, he, you know, our side does, but in a rational way. But what you can't say is what you can't do is lie about what he said. He said terrible things already. He's talking about wiping Israel off the map, et cetera, et cetera, right? But he never said that he looks forward to a worldwide apocalypse, let alone saying it on a daily basis, like Crawley said. He's never said that word. So what she just told you is an absolute lie. The only people who look forward to an apocalypse, as far as I know, I've never heard of a... Look, are there some Muslim uh, fundamentalists who probably look forward to it? Probably. Uh, but I haven't heard about it. No, I'm there, sure only, there are. I but I've never heard about it. People look forward to an apocalypse are people like Tom DeLight. Christian fundamentalists say it all the time. We're, you know, the, you know the, the rapture, there's going to be an apocalypse on Armageddon. We're all going to die, and they look forward to it because that's when Jesus comes back. Well, Those that, are us. That, that's not them. They're not all going to die. Me and you are going to die. Oh, we're definitely going to die. Yeah.
this week, Participate.net announced their student essay winner. In a work inspired by Good Night and Good Luck, 15-year-old Nick Crondavico analyzed just how dangerous manipulation of the news can be. Nick, welcome. Hi. This is a pretty astonishing piece of work. It's not just an opinion piece, which anyone can spew out. This is a very well-constructed work with multiple sites and footnotes. Now, what was the seed of this piece for you? Um, well, it began life as a humanities honors project that I had to do at the beginning of the year. And um, my teacher, Deb Christensen, who I really owe this whole thing to, um, told me about this contest. And I modified it, and I submitted the work, and I modified it so that it sort of read more like a newspaper article so that it qualified, and uh, the rest, you know, it made it as a finalist and then was chosen. And the rest is history. Right, <laughs> as they say. You're in what grade? I'm in 10th uh, grade. 10th grade. Sophomore, yeah. Tell me about your the birth of your political interests. I mean, the, your piece reflects the work of someone who has looked at the way the White House talks, has looked at the way uh, the press machinery talks, and you've looked at the way particularly that Fox News gets its word out. Mm-hmm. And I wonder when that kind of awareness first took root in you. Um, yeah, I've been thinking about it recently, and it, it all sort of started uh, probably the beginning of the year 2004 um, and really sort of took off during the presidential elections that year. And um, I sort of... I, I tend to look at things sort of as a bottom line, and I realize that politics, especially uh, the politics of the United States, affect pretty much everyone. And I realized that, that that's something that I should, you know, inform myself about. I, I needed to, for my own, you know, peace of mind to know about what was going on. So I became sort of politically aware, and I kind of became indignant about the things that I was finding out and learning. What particularly struck you as, as just wrong? Um, just sort of, as I kind of go over in my paper, um, the tendency of the press to become complacent. And uh, I think Good Night and Good Luck really touched upon that mm-hmm. quite a bit. What would you like to see the press do? For example, in your article when you talk about the response to Katrina, what do you think the press could have done better? Well, I think that what we needed was more of an insider look. We needed to sort of go back and recount exactly what had been what had led up to this and, and I think instead of that, we had sort of a lot of, uh, actually to use the uh, the Bush administration's term, um, finger-pointing, which they sort of used a lot during those whole, those couple of weeks. Um, instead of finger-pointing, I think w- what we needed was just a lot of unbiased observations of what we, had, what had gone wrong. And I think that would have turned into sort of, uh, it would have created a finger-to-point in itself because the evidence was clear anyway. You're pretty clear on what happens when one finger points. Let me read a, a tiny paragraph okay. from your work. It says, first you, you lay out your basic thesis about manipulation of the media, and your second paragraph saying this may give the impression this reporter has a liberal bias. But in fact, what's happening is we've arrived at a place in our nation's history when anything spoken poorly about the current administration will be viewed as such. So you know, of course, that now you can be, you can be categorized as a finger pointer and, and then thus blunted. Right. Um, well, I think that is my my the thing that I'm most passionate about is that we I, I'm I, I realize I might be contradicting myself a tiny bit in saying this, but we have we we cannot speak poorly about this administration without being accused of of partisan politics, and that is that therein lies the problem because I think the press is sort of the nervous system of the nation, and if we can't if we don't have a responsive press, then we don't know what's going on. 
What are you going to do with this activist streak of yours? Uh, I haven't really decided yet, actually. I mean, I think anything, any path that I take in life is going to somehow incorporate politics in my sort of my passion for that. But I don't know if it's going to take the lead necessarily. Uh, Nick, let's hear part of your essay. In fact, where's the part that you take on the Fox News Corporation? Okay. FNC is manipulating the world's public view. They are fabricating a pleasant but false fantasy version of the real world, which makes for good television. Other established news networks are seeing their success and reacting like a competing company in any business, and they're trying to duplicate the effect in order to reap the benefits. The result is a free pass for the Bush administration to pull off anything, good or bad, that an eight-year timeline will allow. Any news outlet that questions their judgment or points out the obvious is a biased news organization with a political agenda. This is extremely dangerous because it demonstrates the exact boundaries of the public discourse, and it shows us that we do not have the means to keep our government in check. Hard to believe you're 15, Nick. How would you fix the problem that is Fox? I really think, I, I think the problem lies at the source, which is the politics of uh, Rupert Murdoch. And so I don't think there's really, at this point, anything that can happen unless uh, Rupert Murdoch resigns, and I don't see that happening. I, I, I don't want to advocate the removal of Fox News or anything because that would obviously, you know, not be, that would go against the First Amendment, but I don't think that it should be taken seriously. Nick, I want to tell you in parting that uh, I was telling my husband about your essay last night, and as we watched the car, I said to him, thank God he's on our side. <laughs> thank you, Nick. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. That's Nick Crandavico, winner of Participation Pictures Student Essay Contest. His essay, The Decline of Public Discourse in America, is online at participate.net. Mike Papantonio with Bobby Kennedy on Ring of Fire on Air America Radio. I'm back with Joseph Almond and Tom Brewer, author of a new book, Sweet Jesus, I Hate Bill O'Reilly. You know, guys, I can't t- I-, I literally have lost count of the number of times that this windbag has gone on the air and said Air America will be out of business next week. He, he literally has been saying it for about two and a half years now. Well, the bizarre thing is, the first time he mentioned it, he talked about Air America going on the air and how it was going to be smear merchants and character assassins. And at the end of the segment, he said, and I will never speak of it again. (laughs) And that was two years ago. And we we actually, that was our first entry. And we said, oh, Bill, you don't even know yourself. (laughs) You know, it's that kind of mentality of he has no clue even of who he is and what he believes. Because, you know, he's going to be harping on that every single day. Yeah. You really can't call Bill O'Reilly a liar. He's really a sociopath, isn't he? To be a liar, you have to know that you're lying. And I think that, you know, he does lie, but it's not so much that he's lying to his viewers as he lies to himself. And he does it over and over. When he says, I didn't say that, I believe in his head at that moment. (laughs) He thinks I didn't say that. Now, he said it 10 minutes earlier. It doesn't matter. But uh, he he said it. And, and, And the fact of the matter is, it's not even that he doesn't remember saying it. He thinks I would never say something like that. You know, there's such this weird duality. Did you get a chance to read his sexual harassment case? When you read what he had to say, it's like a demented man, by way of his attorney, has written all this stuff. And I think it speaks well for for the very point that you're making, and that is most of the time he honestly believes his lies, doesn't he? Well, yeah, he really believes in that whole Macris case that he was the victim. 
Yeah. And he really sees himself as this victim status, and I think that he pushes that again across all the boards. And and that's evident in the way he's acted since then. Anytime any, anybody brings up the Macris case, he's got that media defamation page. It's, it's on his website. If you look at that, basically every newspaper or magazine or outlet that is on there is on there because they, you know, said loofah. <laughs> or falafel. Really? No, seriously. So, he doesn't that's, say that's that. Not an exaggeration, you guys but... are making this up. No, 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 no. <laughs> or, or, or made some sort of reference. The, the latest one is the Dayton Daily News got placed on there because, and, and we kind of thought, well, maybe it's because, I mean, Bill said they weren't. Hard enough on sex offenders. Right. And we looked into it and looked at the actual editorial, and it's because they brought up the Macris case. Yeah, yeah. And they didn't bring it up in any sort of malicious way, like we do. Yeah, Um, or I do. Every chance I get, I don't know if it's malicious, it's just the truth. The guy's an absolute fraud. We were thinking that if people are going to give our book attention, you know, that would be the easiest way to get on the enemies list. So we were going to do buttons that say, like, get on O'Reilly's enemies list now, ask me how, right? and kind of wear them and, and try to get people, you know, just for mentioning the book, we have a feeling that you, it's a pretty quick way to get I'm, on the enemies list. I'm actually worried about my mother and her Christmas newsletter. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just worried Best Buy might pull their ad. I don't know. I mean, it's like... Yeah, you have a great line in your book. You, you talk about the fact that O'Reilly's lack of self-awareness remains a fatal handicap to his ability to understand the world. Uh, you, you go and point out that O'Reilly, he can look at somebody like Newt Gingrich or Ann Coulter and, and see that nothing's wrong. I mean, he can say that, yeah, th- those those are normal people. Well, I, you know, he's not the stupidest man in the world. He's he's not the smartest, and he's not, not particularly bright. But I, I think a lot of his problems just kind of stem from not being, I guess, willing to really examine himself. But what's weird is, you know, how he views himself and how he sees himself in this kind of no-spin zone. He actually said, you know, we we try to show both sides, but we've had to remove some of our liberal guests because they spin constantly. And then he'll bring on (laughs) Ann Coulter, and under Ann's picture, it'll say, no spin Ann. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just crazy. I I call, I love to call, Ann Coulter's one of the hate hags. Well, this, I I think what's happening, this is just my observation as I've watched uh, this whole O'Reilly thing. I think he's a hate has-been. I really think uh, if you, you talk about the numbers of people watching him. Well, I mean, if he's got a million people watching him on other channels, there are 20 or 30 million people watching the other channels. Uh, so I, I have a real hard time believing that he's mainstream America. He isn't, but he tries to spin that. Now, I got to tell you one thing he is, is a demagogue, isn't he? I, look at the Mary Nagel story. Mary Nagel, and, and it was a horrible tragedy. She was killed uh, by, a, by an illegal alien, and uh, she was a suburban mother. O'Reilly kind of spun it into, I think the phrase he used was a, a micro 9-11. Well, and how long are these illegal murdering aliens going to be allowed to, you know, kind of maraud the countryside? Right. Made it sound like it was it. a trend, like, like be right. careful, the illegal aliens are coming to your town to murder you. Yeah, and, I mean, you know, the effect that he was trying to create there is obvious. I mean, he's trying to scare people. You know, well, and there's no evidence to back it up. As Tom of said, course not. Tom, Tom's point, and one of Tom's points in the book was, you know, for every you know suburban mother killed by an illegal alien, there could very well be an illegal alien who was killed by a suburban mother, you know, right. who is driving her, uh, you know, Lexus SUV a little too fast and picked off a, a guy on the side of the road. But that, that's his that's his science, though, isn't it? He's a thug. Well, I, I think that you know, kind of this fear-based journalism, this outrage-based journalism. I think he's really tapped into it, and I think there's a lot of uh, especially older Americans that really want someone 
to, quote, look out for them, but uh, do it in a way that they're attacking people that disagree with them. And, 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 you know, between his book sales and things, you know, I mean, he does have some sphere of influence. And, and the fact that he has any sphere of influence is dangerous. And, and yeah, there's a lot more people that watch, you know, Deal or No Deal, but I don't know if that's good either. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. You remember, uh, and you talk about it in your book, he, he goes on the no-spin zone and he talks about how un-American it is to boycott. Yeah. Do you remember that? What does he do after that? Oh, yeah, he he boycotts everything now from, you know, France to... He's gotten to the point where he doesn't exactly say boycott anymore. He just says, don't buy these products. Yeah, but he goes, um, he, he goes, he goes after all French products, went yeah, after yeah. Vivendi Corporation, went yeah, after these, Reebok. Yeah, uh, oh, and, they, and it was just, uh, you know, a windfall for all these um, countries and companies. It's like he's got the Midas touch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, if he says if he says boycott him, you can bet on one better, thing, sales are going to increase. You better oh. order more inventory. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 buy that stock. And and, yeah. and, 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 and we're not joking because no, I know and, that. And, and I know we're that. not qualified to give financial advice, but in this case we are. So um, uh, you can actually do this. If he says boycott a company, buy that stock and buy a ton of it and send me a commission, 10% off the top. No, the, every time I heard that he was on a buy, boycott, I'm inclined to go buy the product. I mean, I, I loaded up with French bread. I have more yeah. French wine. I can't drink all the French wine, and I drink a lot of wine. Well, so uh, don't you don't you kind of hope he sues you over this book? Uh, we're actually counting on it. We actually have a, a legal team assembled, and we've got uh, you know court TV ready. Um, they are planning on doing uh, half hour nightly. Hey Joe, listen. The, the the thing I'm asking you is this. I'll do it pro bono. I will I, if you'll just let me go take his deposition when he does sue you. I'll do it for nothing. You got yourself a deal. Joe and Tom, thanks for joining us. Okay. Okay. Thank thanks. you. Uh, bye bye. Joseph Almond and Tom Brewer, their book and their website are both called Sweet Jesus, I Hate Bill O'Reilly. Let's get on to our egregious clip of the week. Uh, it is uh, on CNN with our old friend Wolf Blitzer, as always. Uh, and first, we have Joe Lieberman. I, in the beginning, I thought maybe the egregious part of the clip was Joe Lieberman again expressing his love for George Bush for the first, like, 15, 20 seconds of the clip. But it turns out that was his way of criticizing him. <laughs> uh, but then uh, everybody, as you're watching the clip... Watch for what Babe Buchanan says. And so try not to get too exercised about Joe Lieberman. Be patient. Right, yeah, right. because what Babe Buchanan says is truly outrageous. And it goes by, of course, Wolf doesn't she's comment a, on it. She's Pat Buchanan's uh, sister uh, and uh, was his uh, ran his uh, uh, campaigns for president. Right, and I, I thought about really highlighting Joe Lieberman, but what she said was so egregious that I, I didn't want to muddy up the, the, right. the point of the post. All right. Smart move. So let's watch it here on theyoungturks.com, and then we'll talk about it a little bit afterwards about abolishing FEMA as we know it President Bush won our admiration and our gratitude for the way he took charge responding to the attacks against America of September 11th in the case of Hurricane Katrina he failed to provide that same presidential leadership when it was needed and America suffered it seems this administration, as I said earlier, can't cut a break. And any day they try to do something, they're going to be undermined by other developments, uh, including today. 
Well, there's no question. I believe that Katrina is has worn its welcome. I mean, and I think we've heard about it. We've heard about it. American people have responded. The president suffered it, weakened his poll numbers, and and but to suggest that somehow this is going to continue to 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 play against him, I think the American people are getting a little tired of it. Myself. What do you think? Well, Susan Collins and Joe Lieberman are the bipartisan geniuses who first took FEMA, the Emergency Management Agency, out of its cabinet level status that Bill Clinton gave it, lost it into the middle of this vast bureaucracy which is part of the reason it couldn't respond. So today, Collins and Lieberman want to change the name from FEMA to, get this, the National Preparedness and Response Authority. So they're just going to move some alphabet it's letters around. It's D-U-M-B. What they ought to do is what Bill Clinton did. Kick the political hacks out, who Mr. Bush has put in, put competent leaders in there, and show that the government actually can step in. I mean, I was there when Clinton was in office in 93. There were floods in the Midwest. FEMA responded. In 94, there was a Northridge earthquake in California. FEMA responded. In 95, Oklahoma you City. Know. In 99, all right, well, there it is. John, uh, what do you think? Is Baby Cannon have a good point that the American people are? Come on, they're a little tired of all this Katrina stuff. Right, they're just, you know, they're tired of seeing images of people struggling and, and crying and floating down the river and, you know, pets floating. And it, it's just tiring. I mean, she is, you know, you see these things and you can't believe what comes out of the mouths of these conservative yeah. types like her. Because, you know, you know, John, you know who's tired of it? She's tired of it. She's tired of seeing people who she doesn't identify with or know anything about. She's tired of seeing poor people. She's tired of seeing poor black people. She's tired of seeing people who don't have the means that she has, who don't think exactly the way she the way she does. That's, and she presumes, because all her friends are like that, that that's why uh, that, that everybody's tired of it. When, of course, you know, it's again, it's like, you know, I'm tired of 9-11. The buildings fell down. Enough. Let's move on. Yeah, it's but ridiculous. Guys, this happened, like, nearly a year ago. It's like, come on, move on. you got to Another hurricane season coming up. I mean, what are we supposed to take care of you for another year? No, no they haven't even fixed the levees. And, I mean, you know, you, always, you remember President Bush going down there and giving that speech, and all the politicians were banging their chests. We're going to have funding. We're going to rebuild New Orleans. It's going to be great. And they've done absolutely nothing. My favorite line, though, was, Katrina has worn out its welcome. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, what does that mean? Bitch. And then second of all, <laughs> yeah, it wore out its welcome when it first came ashore, and you didn't do anything about it, and it came over the levees. But When was it ever welcome? <laughs> yeah, what does that mean? It's worn out its welcome. I guess what she's trying to say is, all oh, you complaining about how we right. let the poor people That's you know, I mean. That's die I mean. and suffer and let the city go under, you're worn out your welcome. I'm tired of hearing you poor people. Right, and you know, the way she really feels, it's like they were just, you know, they had ample warning, and they're just too lazy to get out of New Orleans. Yeah, she says, you know, okay, so Bush got, has suffered from it already. Enough. Okay, how much are you guys going <laughs> to uh, beat the poor guy up over it? Yeah, the polls can't go any lower over it, so let's not talk about it. See, for her, it's not about what happened to the people of New Orleans. It's not about who died, who suffered, who don't have homes anymore. It's about, come on, you've beat up on our poor president enough now. See, because the, the people really suffering aren't the people of New Orleans. It's Bush. And we've got to really make sure that his suffering is now over. Well, it's a long way from that. And it's, it's really, it's just indicative of the conservative pundits that are on our airwaves constantly. This is what the American people are bombarded with. People like her, people like Bill Bennett, they, people.
people like Sean Hannity, like mm-hmm. like Rush Limbaugh. This is the message. This is the people, you know, that are being that the media is allowing to express these opinions on the air, and and it's a travesty. And, and the uh, the second biggest problem with that, John, I think you're right, and we're talking to John Amato of CrooksandLiars.com, is. You know, Wolf Blitzer, come on, dude. I know you got 10 seconds left, but come back and say something. Or, you know, say, I'm sorry, i got to interrupt, but what do you mean Katrina's worn out its welcome or that American people are tired of it? What kind of a statement is that? He's not listening. He's not no, listening. No, but, no, but that's a great point. I mean, these, these, these people, these shows can have on whoever they want. And, yet, I mean, that's their right to come on and say idiotic, ignorant, awful things like she's just come out to say. I mean, Wolf Blitzer, do your job. At that point, you're just being an irresponsible journalist. I mean, he's not a journalist talk show host. Oh, he's a journalist. How is he a journalist at that point when he lets lets a comment like that go by? That's just irresponsible reporting then on his part to to represent his show like that. I didn't say it was a good one. And the the other thing which I'm actually going to highlight soon is I heard it a few times. The administration can't catch a break. Like, they announced Tony Snow and the rove goes. I'm like, what are you like? What are you talking about? Like, they're cheerleaders. What are you talking about? The administration can't catch a break. The administration makes their own breaks. They make their own news. They make their policies. It's what's happening. It's what they're doing to themselves. It's not about, you know, in other words, I mean, he's talking like it's just luck. No, exactly. They bulldoze their own grave, and they wonder why they're so deep in it at this point. John, as we let you go, let me remind everybody of the the words of the legendary uh, baseball general manager, Branch Rickey, who had the foresight to sign Jackie Robinson to a uh, to a contract, and one of the great things that Rick, Ricky said as the GM of the Brooklyn Dodgers was, "Luck is the residue of design," uh, and so you don't catch a break; you make your own breaks. And uh, I've all my dad taught me that very early in life, and it is it's incredibly true. And especially when you have the ability to make your own luck with the the vast power held by this administration, they can't catch a break. Spare I, me. I thought this party was about personal responsibility. Now it's all about can't catch a break. What they say that, what they actually mean is they can't get anything right. This is Ben Mankiewicz from the Young Turks, and you're listening to us on the Best of the Left podcast. Catch the entire show live at www.theyoungturks.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. Remember, there's a couple of ways that you can join up with the show. I am signed up on both Frapper and MySpace. So if you are members of either of those websites, uh, you or if you'd like to be, then you can search for me there. Uh, my name is Best of the Left Podcast on both of them. Or you can just go to bestoftheleftpodcast.com and find the links directly to my page. I would love to see you there. And, uh, you know, you can help me uh, spread the word on uh, on the show. And that's... Always, always lots of fun. And not only that, as an added bonus, uh, there is, uh, I guess what I would say is a an incomplete list of uh, some of my own personal favorite podcasts are listed under, uh, un- under my list of friends on MySpace. When I signed up, I, I went through and found all the people who I like to listen to and requested to be their friends. So if you're interested at all, for whatever reason, in what I like to listen to, then that's one way to find out. At least some of them, anyways. Aside from all of that, you can contact me directly, as always, at hippysympathizer 
at gmail.com. Have a good one, everybody.